You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. I want to start with a question, uh, and it's, it's this. What causes you to tear up? And I mean just generally speaking. What causes you to tear up? So uh, for some of you, the Hallmark commercials, right? It's just even, even hearing that word, Hallmark commercial, and you just start to already get this one that I remember, uh, this little guy, we'll call him Johnny. We always call him Johnny or Billy. He's Johnny today. He's like 10 years old. Every winter, uh, Christmas time, he does a duet with his older brother, Tom, Oh Holy Night, in the living room, around the fireplace, Christmas tree. It's beautiful. Tom's away in the war. He's in Europe. True story, that commercial. I don't know. He's in, he's in Europe. And so Billy, Johnny, Johnny, is like, he looks back at the door, and then he turns and he has to start in on his solo, right? By the third, I know, it's sad. By the third verse... Tom has snuck in the back, joins him. It's a beautiful harmony, and some of you just cry. And maybe that doesn't do it for you, but you love animals. And that, that one really sad dog uh, kennel commercial, do you know the one I'm talking about? The really janky uh, cages and the music's really sad, the lighting's poor. That commercial's like 15 minutes long, right? And they're just talking about, I mean, you flip over to go watch the last quarter of the Lakers game and you come back and it's still the same commercial. And it's just so sad. And my wife can't even watch that one. It's just like, just the waterworks. And some of you, it's like, those things don't really get me worked up at all. The military people that have their fatigues on that come home to surprise their husband or wife or kids or parents. And now that'll do it, right? If that doesn't move you to tears, you have a lump of coal where your heart should be, <laughs> right? I'll tell you, on certain days, any of those will get me kind of going, like just tearing up. But other days, they just don't touch me at all. I'm like, I, okay, I'm glad that that happened, but it doesn't really move me. But there's one thing that moves me all the time. Every time I see it, it moves me. It's when people that don't have very much are really generous. That gets me every time. That causes me to tear up. Maybe you've been to a a poor country and maybe on a missions trip or with work or however you're there and you're in a host home and they've put before you a meal that was really costly for them. It's not a big deal for you. You eat better than that most of the time, but it costs that family a lot to provide that for you. And they did it out of their joy and because they wanted to be generous. That's beautiful. That causes me to tear up. When uh, my wife and I planted a church in Long Beach 15 years ago, a couple years in, we went out to the, the, uh, the front porch and there was a gift there and we took it in the house and we opened it and it was like a gift card, $50 gift card to one of our favorite restaurants. It was a really nice candle, not the kind you get at the Dollar Tree, but a really nice legitimate candle, some good socks, some snacks. I mean, it was a costly gift. And we opened the card and it's from this gal named Claudia. Claudia is a single mom, had two girls. We met her. She was living at a shelter in Long Beach, and she had a part-time job cleaning houses and was putting herself through school. She had zero disposable income, and yet she did this act of generosity towards us. You know how much that meant for us? She did this on a number of occasions for anniversaries and birthdays. She just couldn't stop the generosity. And after my initial response of wanting to tell her to stop, 
and say, please don't do that anymore. You feel this guilt, right? Please don't do And then being rebuked by the Lord because who am I to say what joy she can have in giving? That was about me, my insecurity, not her and her giving. After that, I was able to just see the beauty of her gift and I just cried every time. I just couldn't help myself. She had so little, but what she had, she shared with us. Do you know what that kindness does to our relationship with Claudia? It binds our hearts together. It causes us to be more united than we were because of her kindness, her care for us, her thought of us, her sacrifice for us. It strengthens the bond of unity that we already had. Unity and generosity, they play off each other, they support each other. Our unity should cause us to be generous to those we're united to, and our generosity toward one another should promote more and more unity in our relationships. Does that make sense how these two things work together? Yeah. So selfishness works against unity because it's about me, my, mine, instead of seeking the good of someone else. Selflessness, on the other hand, works toward unity because like Jesus, it thinks of others first. So Pastor Bob mentioned a few weeks back the example of the early church, their generosity, and he, he was real clear that it's not the redistribution of wealth that we see there. It's not saying it once was mine and now it's yours. The example of, of the early church is sharing what we have so that it once was mine, but now it's ours. Ours to use, ours to care for. It highlights a mutual responsibility. I think he used the example of a car. It was my car and I give it, and now it's our car. It's not your car now and not mine, it's ours. We have a responsibility toward one another, to care for each other, to use our resources to bless one another. And while the church does have a responsibility toward all of our neighbors in the world, we're called to love God and neighbor, that includes anyone in need, we have a particular responsibility to one another in the body of Christ as a family of believers. We're going to spend a majority of our time this morning in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, but as this is a series on Acts, uh, I'm vocationally obligated to look there with you this morning. So Acts chapter 20, we're going to be moving, uh, we've been moving in this series through the book of Acts. We join Paul in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Ephesus. In chapter 19, we read about this riot that's broken out in the city of Ephesus. Uh, many in Ephesus worshiped the, the goddess Artemis, and some of the local craftsmen made their living on Artemis memorabilia, right? Think of it, the hats with Artemis on it, go Artemis, the flags, the big pop-up tent, they're concerned that if another deity comes in, Yahweh, that, that's going to displace Artemis, their business is going to dry up and they're going to be broke. And so what do they do? They get the whole city in an uproar and they scream about it for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city's in an uproar. And it's at that point that we enter Acts chapter 20. Listen to verses 1 to 6. After the uproar ceased, after that died down, Paul sent for the disciples, the Ephesians, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. This is uh, off the Aegean Sea. It's in the northeast area of the land, off the Aegean Sea. Departed for Macedonia, 
When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he goes south to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, just like they were out to get Jesus, they're out to get Paul, he was, brought, he was about to set sail for Syria, but because of the plot, the danger, he decided to go back the way he came, return through Macedonia. And then verse 4, all these hard-to-pronounce names. Sopater the Berean son of Pyrrhus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, who was from Lystra, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Meredith, aren't you glad I had to read that other passage? Yeah. Amen. Amen. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So it's a really detailed account. But what Paul's doing is he's, he's telling us about his extended time in the region of Macedonia. The first time through Macedonia was when he planted churches there, which includes uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. So he plants those churches there. That's his first time. He returns to go through them in their, that region, encouraging them on his way to Greece. That's the second time he's there. And then because of the plot, he goes back the way he came a third time through the region of Macedonia. Paul and company, they minister in this region. No doubt they're sharing about how the churches are doing. Uh, Christians are asking, How's, how are our brothers and sisters in another part of the world doing? He's telling them how they're doing. He tells them about the Christians at Jerusalem, sort of a Hebrew home base. He tells the Macedonian Christians, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have some serious needs. They don't have enough, right? We're not talking about flat screens. They don't have enough food and clothing, this grips the hearts of these Macedonian Christians. And because they have the Spirit of God, they, they want to help. Paul, through his missionary journeys, has been collecting donations. The, a collection for the saints in Jerusalem is what the New Testament calls it. Sort of early church fundraising. And now Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he doesn't directly address Paul's fundraising. Not because it's not important, but because he's got other things to emphasize. But Paul mentions it in his letters. And in one of his letters is to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 15. He says, we're going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And he says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the saints at Macedonia and Achaia, they're Gentiles. The saints at Jerusalem, they're Jews. And what the gospel has done is to bring Jew and Gentile together to make them one family, one body. And so these churches are to continue what we see modeled in the early chapters of the book of Acts. This, this, we could call it a ministry of sharing. And you might remember this from Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. We read uh, mind-boggling things like they had all things in common, selling possessions to distribute to those in need. That's, that's a big deal. And no one said anything that belonged to them was their own. How does that hit our ears when we work hard and, and have inheritances from our families that have been passed down for generations? Nothing that we have is our own. People sold lands and houses, brought it to the apostles' feet to distribute to whoever had needs. It's just radical generosity. So we see this ministry of sharing. We also see a, a, some insincere sharing, a cautionary tale in Acts 5, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, maybe you remember them. They appear 
to be displaying the same kind of selfless generosity as their brothers and sisters in, in Acts 2 and 4, but they're posing. They're doing it for show, not from a sincere heart. They lied to God, they lied to the apostles, and they paid dearly for it. What does that tell us? It tells us that our unity, the genuineness of our unity is serious business. And it tells us that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. Before we jump into 2 Corinthians this morning, a quick word about these traveling companions of Paul, all these hard to, hard, hard to read or pronounce names in Acts 20 verse 4. Seven people, five different locales, They're all from, they all belong to the same universal church, they're all cooperating in the same worldwide mission they're the fruit of Paul's ministry, all these places he's been. People have been converted. They've come along with him. It's signs of the, the Spirit's work, the gospel playing out, this, this mixed group of people moving together in the same direction. And there's also this sacrifice, this generosity we don't want to miss on, on the part of the sending churches from these regions. These churches are sending some of their very best leaders to leave their places Right, the gospel's barely, I mean, it's barely taken root. We need good leaders. They're sending out some of their very best to go with Paul and take the gospel to the end of the earth. Now, with some of that background in mind, let's, let's pivot to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for the rest of the message. And if you like uh, outlines, there's one in your bulletin. Unity and... Kind of the head term there. Unity and the generosity of the poor Macedonians. Unity and the generosity of the rich Messiah. Unity and the generosity of me and you. So first, unity and the generosity of the poor Macedonians. I want to read this again, the passage that Meredith read. It's because I want us to really hear the, the reality of what has happened in this community. 2 Corinthians 8.1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So these poor Christians most likely had become poor because of their commitment to Jesus. That's probably the severe affliction that we read about in verse 2. They had many needs of their own and they are, these, these words are really significant. They're begging Paul for the favor of helping others to relieve the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. And, and notice when they beg Paul for this. It's not after they got back on their feet. This isn't six months after the severe affliction and now that everything is reset. It's not after the recession is over. It's not after their loan has been approved, right? They're, they're not pledging to help later when, Lord willing, he'll give us more resources and then we can commit to helping it was during their extreme poverty that they gave. And they, they gave according to their means, 
which is wonderful. It's, it's beautiful and obedient and thing when God's people give anything. When we give according to our means, that's great. But they didn't stop there. They went beyond their means. That, that's where the Spirit really shows up. Beyond their means, of their own accord also. In other words, they weren't guilted into it. In fact, they, they begged earnestly for the favor Paul, 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 please, please let us give more. It's an uncommon generosity, isn't it? Like their brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church, they'd been stripped of resources. They'd fallen on financially hard times because of their faith in Jesus. And these Macedonians, it's incredible. They had two things we might not expect to find together. They had extreme poverty and an abundance of joy. Right? Extreme poverty and an abundance of joy. God had made them rich, not in money, but in joy. And out of that joy, they were extremely, extremely generous. They gave according to their means. They gave beyond their means of their own accord, their own free will. And this wasn't because Paul's not a... a a swindler like other people that would blow through these towns and try to take advantage of people. He wasn't saying anything crazy like if you give in the next 72 hours, God's going to return a 72-fold blessing on your head. And if it didn't work, it's because you didn't have enough faith and you need to try again and just give more, believe harder. No, they freely gave. And not only that, they begged for the opportunity. The fact that they begged makes me think that Paul was maybe trying to do what we sometimes do, which is to stop people. You've given enough. No, no, you need to keep something for yourself. But they'd have none of that. Their joy wouldn't be complete until it overflowed to meet the needs of others. Uh, I am not opposed to begging for what I want. Anyone else? Yeah, All right. I see that hand, Andrew. But I don't ever recall begging to give more money to some person or worthy cause. Oh, please, 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 let me give more. This was highly unusual. Even in Paul's day, it was unusual, which is why he says, and this was not as we expected. The reason they were so generous, verse 5, they had first given themselves to the Lord. And then came their financial gifts to Paul to hand on to the saints at Jerusalem. Friends, if we've not first given ourselves to the Lord and practiced that many days afterwards, uh, repeated that again and again, we should not expect to have in our lives any inkling of uncommon generosity, right? Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He's telling them about the generosity of the Macedonians, hoping to encourage the same thing in them. And this word, grace community, is for us this morning to the same end to encourage us to practice an uncommon generosity. Can I get an amen? Oh, come on. Can I get a big amen? Amen. All right. Get your wallets out. Ushers, come take the offering. <laughs> Don't you find it incredible that such poor people gave so generously, more than they could afford? Is that not beautiful? It's incredible. You know what's even more incredible, more miraculous than the generosity of the poor? It's the generosity of the rich. Would it surprise you to find out that those who are living in poverty give a greater percentage of what they have than the rich? It's true. 
Bill Gates and Mackenzie Scott and others like them, they throw off our perception of this because they're so generous, so benevolent. But as a rule, the wealthier you are, the less generous you become. There's one glaring example to this rule, though, isn't there? Jesus. Jesus was rich, extremely rich, far wealthier than any monarch or mogul this earth has ever known, and yet he gave it all away. The generosity of the poor Macedonians, that, that is moving, that's convicting. The generosity of our rich Messiah is everything. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. I'm going to read that again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace, that Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Is this not amazing grace, good news? Unlike the early church's practice, here it seems pretty clear we do have a redistribution of wealth. It's exactly what we have. Jesus gives us his riches. He retains none of them and he takes on our poverty. Of all the ways Jesus experienced poverty, and there were many, read the Gospels. Certainly the cross was the epitome. To leave the heights of glory and, of glory and, and heaven, to come and experience the depths and darkness of our sin. To die on a tree, that's poverty. We've heard a lot from the Apostle Paul this morning. How about Peter? 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is, he became poor so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness so that we might become rich. The generosity of our rich Messiah, it removes all barriers between us and our creator God, and it gives us to one another as family. Paul is trusting that by the spirit of God, the example of the Macedonians, the even more impressive example of the Messiah, Jesus, that he has convinced the Christians at Corinth and Rome and Seal Beach and everywhere else he goes to be generous. He wants God's people, all God's people, to mirror in their living what they've received from God. To show the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in our sacrificial giving. To live so counterculturally, friends, that, that sleepy Christians will wake up and the world will get a witness. Amen? Now, I assume that whenever a preacher talks about money, we all reach for our wallets and purses, right? To, not to open them, but to clamp onto them really good, to hold them tight. Now, that's not necessarily actually true here. This is a generous church. That's one of the things my wife and I have noticed since we've been here the last seven years, how, how generous grace is, truly. 
Even during the pandemic, we were able, we were blessed and we were able to give to some other churches that were struggling. But can I tell you something? God wants more from us. Why? Because he wants more for us. Right? God wants more from us, more generosity, more sacrifice, more giving, because he wants more for us. Let's get uh, practical. Um, I hope the why we should be giving and be generous has been clearly communicated this morning. But once that's understood and accepted, there are some other questions that we need to ask when it comes to giving. So we've seen unity and the generosity of the poor Macedonians, unity and the generosity of the rich Messiah, and we'll we'll end our uh, sermon with unity and the generosity of me and you. Four questions and and four responses, and they they come out of 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11. So if you want to look there, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11. First, how much should I give? That's a common question, right? How much should I give? The New Testament doesn't command a percentage, uh, but it does tell us, uh, Paul tells us, that you'll receive in a manner consistent with your giving, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is not talking about a giving to get kind of thing like you'll hear on TBN. Paul is saying that if you give generously, you'll receive generously from God. If you sow abundantly, think of a farmer who throws out a lot of seed. You sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. And it might be money that God gives you. And if so, you need to be a good steward and practice being a good steward. But certainly what he gives us are things like joy and peace and grace. The Macedonians had sown bountifully, like the widow who gave her last might. And they were reaping bountifully, but they were, monetarily speaking, still poor. Poor in money, but rich in mercy. Rich in generosity, as we've seen. How much should you give? It depends. How much do you want to receive? Good question, too. How should I feel about giving? Verse 7, each one must give as he or she has made up in their mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's a way to give your money that does not give yourself. Did you know that? God wants none of that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all that I have but have not love, I gain nothing. Likewise, if our giving comes from a reluctant heart, God would rather have you keep your money. And you know what? Our church would rather have you keep your money too. The earlier services, I see the, the finance committee just cringing when I, when I say that. But it's true. God desires our good in our giving and is always more concerned about our hearts than our giving record. But when that heart has been formed by God's grace, your generosity will overflow. You can't stop it. How should I feel about my giving? Happy. Third question, what happens if I give too much? Can I, like the Macedonians, give beyond my means? Can I do that? Uh, Julie and I have two kids in college. They're only in year two. Uh, Four cars. Uh, Four auto insurance policies on those four cars. We have to put gas in those cars. 
We have a mortgage. I mean, it starts to pile up, right? Paul in verses 8 to 11 is throwing down a challenge to us. He's saying, try. Just, just try to outgive God. Listen, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies need to the sower or seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We just read through that. We're like, oh, that's amazing. Did you hear verse 9? Nine, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He has given to the poor. If you give so much that you become poor, he will give to you. You will not go without. He'll give you what you need. Our problem, one of our problems when it comes to giving, is that we tend to think so small. We think, what do, what do I have in my possession? What do I have in my bank account? We don't think corporately like a family. So we think when this is gone, however much this is, I'm out and there's no way I'll be okay after that. Instead of, I'm part of a body, there are others who will care for me if I find myself in need, so I can be free to give generously. And by God's grace, I'm going to try. Give more generously than you ever have, friends, going into the holiday season and see what God does. What happens if I give too much? Answer, you can't, so go ahead and try. Fourth question, where should my giving go? Uh, Pastor Bob did not appreciate this joke earlier because he, Bob and money, I get it, but I'm the associate. So it is Minister's Appreciation Month, right? Where should your giving go? I don't know. Do you know any ministers? My last name, by the way, is spelled C U L L. No, a lot of places will gladly receive your money, right? According to the Bible, God's people are to give to their local church. We're to provide for our families. We're to always have an eye out for anyone in need, people we come across that have need. But especially in light of today's message, I would say that at least a portion of our giving ought to be given to Christians living in poverty, and if we want to get really specific in our application, we should give to Christians who find themselves to be poor because they're persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Those for whom persecution has brought about their poverty. If only there were some organizations who, who could make it possible for us to give to such Christians. And if only they had really easy to find websites and easy ways to donate online in about 45 seconds. You know, there are organizations like that. Our two that I'd recommend are the Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors USA. You can Google those and talk to me afterwards if you'd like more. Well, let me ask you something this morning. Do you want to be free from the tyranny of me and mine and this scarcity mentality that says not enough. You'll never have enough. You need to make as much as you can, keep as much as you can. Don't be too generous. You're gonna find yourself in need. Do you wanna be free from that? 
Have you tired yet of loving your stuff? Of putting your hope in things that spoil? If a spirit of generosity overtakes us, many of our questions about giving cease to be issues. What else is there to say this morning? Uh, our treasure is in heaven so we can let goods and kindred go. Right? We have a better possession than anything we can see or, or grab onto today or tomorrow. Our generosity toward one another in the body of Christ, locally, or us with Parkcrest in their time of need, or other churches when they need financial assistance during COVID. Our generosity toward one another, locally and globally, with God's people around the world, it communicates that we see each other, we care for each other, we love each other, and if that doesn't promote unity in the body of Christ, I don't know what will. It's not just our money and possessions that God wants us to loosen our grip on. It's our time. It's our entitlements. It's our fears. It's our anger. He wants us to loosen our grip on everything that's not Jesus and his kingdom. And by the way, God doesn't need your money. Let me say that again. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is to say he doesn't need your little goat. But he wants your heart. He does want your heart. And so quit resisting that. Quit resisting him. And receive the gift that God has for you this morning. Jesus and all the good things that come with him. I'm, uh, I'm pretty charismatic in my theology, but I really hesitate to say God told me something. So I won't say that. God told me to end our service today with a particular prayer, but I will say this. I feel that it would be very pleasing to God for us to end our service today with a particular prayer. That's the charismatic loophole. That's the, how you get it anyway. Yeah. There's a prayer on the back of your bulletin called the Prayer of Relinquishment. And I want us to, to pray this together, to, to say this together. Uh, if you're comfortable, just put your palms up on your, your lap, um, or one palm up and one hand holding the, the sheet, I suppose. And, and as we pray this, I, I wonder sometimes that in, in my prayers, in my singing, in my hearing, am I actually expecting God to show up and do something? So as we pray this, let's expect God to actually hear our prayer, to actually deliver us from those things that, that we've got a grip on, that he wants us to relinquish, that that the Lord might actually help us to relinquish things as we pray this prayer of relinquishment. So let, let's, uh, let's pray this together uh, today. Today, O oh Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May your way have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I could never give. I release into your hands 
my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity, eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on the earth for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Let's take 20 seconds of silence to to sit with God.